Hello and welcome back to Books and Badgers. My name is Colin and with me as always I have Trevor here. Um, We are covering uh, season two, episode two. This is actually part two of book one, Cotier. Man, we we got a lot of numbers thrown in there, but really what this means is um, this first uh, part of Moss Flower is so big that we broke it up into uh, two separate episodes. So this is the part two. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one, you can go back to our episode listing, find that one. It's episode one, and we're continuing the conversation with uh, chapter 14. So we're going to jump right back into that and continue that conversation. In chapter 14, Sarmina rules her army with an iron fist in in an attempt to save face for her earlier failure. She issues new commands to her vermin to find any woodland creature in Mossflower and enslave them. Okay, so I... I would I kind of need to break down this chapter with you because I did not understand why she was having her army march in open open fields was my understanding outside of Kotir mm-hmm. um with rocks and heavy armaments I thought that she was trying to strengthen up her army like she was trying to train them and strengthen them and that's why they're doing these drills but then kind of thinking more about it was she just getting them ready for this um, campaign within the Mossflower Woods? No, like, I, I'm... I really think it's just punitive. I think she oh. she feels that the the dimension to Sarmina is really just she's rageful and spiteful, and so we see that in the way, for example, she treats like Fortunata or Fortunata or Ashleg or Ashleg, they... right? Because I think this is the chapter where she tries to have Ashleg kind of executed in front of the whole whole rest of the army. Right. And, and there's a moment when she's like doing some target practice um, and Fortunata comes out and she basically tells Fortunata, like get back in the castle before I shoot you. Um, So I think it's just purely punitive. She didn't get what she wanted with the gloomer. She didn't get, what she wanted with Martin and Gomf. And so she's got to punish somebody. And and I think this is really her means of like punishing and disciplining her troops. Yeah, it's a that's a really good point. I think that you're totally right with your answer. Cause I couldn't really figure out like if she was if she was being this cruel because she was trying to train them to be stronger to then have a stronger army. Um, but that gives, I feel like that gives her too much credit, to be honest. She probably, to your point, she's probably just punishing them. And, um, I thought that it was incredibly cruel what she did to Ash, like where she sends him out in front of the army, has them halt or has them not halt, have, have, has them, uh, march after him. And we know that he's disfigured. He has a, a false leg, right? A peg leg. Yeah. And, um, he has an incredible difficult time catching up and he is fearful for his life when she halts the army and he thinks that he's going to die. And then he yeah. gets up and kind of routes around the army. And I was just thinking like, man, that's like just so incredibly cruel because this is Ashleg is a 
handicapped person that she's just essentially torturing because she's in a bad mood. Um, yeah. yeah, real bad. Yeah, she's she's very cruel. For a moment when it seemed clear like Ashleg was going to eat it here, uh, I really was like, man, I don't, you know, I think Clooney beheaded one of his dudes. <laughs> but this felt hardcore. Yeah, it did. Well, you know, Clooney kicked, kicked a rat off the horse and then ran him over with the carriage. That's so that was true. pretty pretty bad but um yeah it's it really kind of speaks to her her cruelness of doing this yeah in chapter 15 the quorum recruit chib to spy on katir for them we're introduced to columbine a mouse from loam hedge who is a love interest for gonf at Katir, Sarmina daydreams about her new rule, but cannot confront the guilt of killing her father. Back at Brock Hall, a feast is underway, but Cogs and Ferdy slip out of the revelry on a mission to infiltrate Katir. Oh, man. Uh, there's so much going on in this this chapter. I think that this is where Jake's really starts to break out more of... We're seeing like three concurrent things happening in a single right. chapter. He's kind of done that before, but now it's starting to like be pretty more, pretty a lot more consistent. If I remember, remember, right. Yep. Um, the introduction to Chib is so funny to me because <laughs> he is so enthusiastic about the candy chestnuts. Like he knows what they're bringing. He knows what his role is. He's um, bargaining with the team or bartering with the team. Right. Um, about like what if i run into the eagle uh Aguilar? what if i run into him and maybe yeah. if i almost die can i get more payment it's just so funny to see him wailing and dealing for these candy chestnuts and then he even wants to tax gomp for eating <laughs> the chestnuts yes, he's like correct. you ate those i want those back in in you know um perpetuity essentially after <laughs> what you've done it's very clever i i really love how jakes writes the birds and chib i, I chib was a standout character for me um <laughs> Uh, we'll talk more about that when we actually do cover the standout characters. But um, I just really love this introduction to Chib. And it, I think one of the growing factions of Redwall are the birds. I really enjoy the birds. And uh, yeah, Chib's no different. Yeah, Chib's a great little character. I love, so one of the things that I love is that it seems like Jake's always introduces a character with some kind of a regional dialect. So, you know, the moles are Somerset. Um, we have the the Cockney accent with a lot of the rats and stuff. And then there's this Chib who is just very, like, fussy. And he, he does a lot of, like, throat clearing as he talks, which I think is just <laughs> yeah. really kind of funny. Yeah, I think it also has to be, it kind of speaks to the fact that he's a Robin because they talk about how plump he is and, you know, Robins kind of yes. plump themselves up and um, that with the throat, him uh, putting his breast out, you know, is part of what Robins do. Um, but it plays into his fussiness or his uptightness or, um, and it's really cool to see that Columbine kind of steps in and corrects just the terrible negotiations that are happening <laughs> with Chib and she makes, you know, over promises to him things and, 
it's it's just very clever. I I really like the dynamic that's going on here. Um, and then of course Cogs and Ferdy have to basically mess everything up, and they slip out in the <laughs> middle of celebration. Um, the minute I read this, I knew okay, this is going to be how the the story turns. Yeah, Ferdy and Cogs are great little characters. I just find them so funny uh, because they they just believe themselves warriors, and they're like, well, you know, if Martin Gomf got through Katir. Uh, we can too. We're going to go do it. So in chapter 16, Sarmina's army attacks itself in its fruitless search for the creatures of Moss Flower. Meanwhile, Chib discovers a tunnel leading to Gingivir's cell in Katir. At Brock Hall, Bella tells Martin of a coming war, but is interrupted by Goody Sickle, who insists that Ferdy and Cogs are missing. Search party is launched, but not before Sarmina's forces capture the hedgehog children. Oh boy, we knew this was coming with Ferdy and Cogs. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's going to happen. Um, I I don't really have much to add to this except um, the the continual, um, I guess, lore dump of Sal uh, Salamandastrin and yeah, um, as. Bella's kind of talking to Martin about that, that the the coming war, what needs to happen. Um, yeah, that that's really the only yeah, contribution I have. To I this. think to kind of punctuate the idea that you know there's a war coming. Uh, Bella Bella sees it happening, right? And now that Martin's there, she kind of knows like Martin's going to get roped into this one way or another. And to kind of punctuate that statement. Uh, Ferdy and Cogs are kidnapped, <laughs> which they're kind of the mascots of Corum uh, at, at this point. So we're going to see that this plot point with Ferdy and Cogs becomes pretty much the defining, you know, arc of action for the whole rest of book one. Um, one thing I did want to say is I think it's really funny that Sarmina's army attacks themselves. Like they're so tired <laughs> and incompetent that they just attack themselves. But then they also, when they do capture, um, when they capture Ferdian Cogs, it's kind of by pure accident. They don't intentionally <laughs> like they just like they stumbled over themselves and started attacking themselves. They just kind of stumble into to, to Ferdian Cogs while they're sleeping. It, it's 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 just by circumstance that this happens. It doesn't really speak to Sarmina's army being very um, loyal or dedicated or even good at their jobs. Uh, Cause we see that they're clearly not, but um, that, yeah, it, it's just kind of funny to see how this story unravels with the, the, the capture when the, these teams are being led by very in, incompetent. Um, yeah incompetent yeah leaders. incompetent leadership yeah i think one of the things that we're going to see a lot in the whole series this is not anything novel it's going to come up again and again and again is this idea of bad guys really being incompetent because there is no unity in their ranks and the fact that fortunata's uh, group kind of fights Ashleg's group and it's <laughs> they beat each other up really bad it just speaks again to that idea of there's no real unity there's no real understanding of the common mission the common goal and because of that they're frequently going to fail they're still dangerous they're still 
um uh, you right. know they, they are a force to be reckoned with when they are organized but the lack of organization is really a lack of unification uh as we see through this fight and as we're going to see throughout the rest of the book um i can't remember if it's in this chapter or if it comes later that i was trying to i was trying to look it up but um is this where sarmina confronts gingivere and he likes just stares at her or does that come later yeah. No, that's right. Um, I believe this is where Sarmina just can't, she can't face, um, or maybe that's in chapter 15, uh, but she, one of these two chapters, she, she just can't seem to face Gingivere. She has a difficult time with trying to confront him because he's the evidence of what she did. Yeah, it's in it's in this chapter that that happens. Um, he says his uh, it says that Gingerfear's eyes burned into Sarmina and his voice was like a, a knell murderer. Sarmina broke and ran pursued by the voice of her brother like a spear at her back. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's such I, this was a really cool moment. I kind of forgot about it and what was included in my notes. But this is such a cool moment because it shows the weakness of Sarmina, which is her yes. guilt. But I love that like Gingerfear like he's not stepping down right like he's very much still there he's yeah. she can throw him in a dungeon all she likes but he's he's there he's there to remind her of her guilt and he's steadfast in his vengeance for her like we we see all the cards stacking up against sarmina we know that they're going to fall eventually right this this was a really cool development mo moment um but because this plays so closely into the next chapter yeah it, it definitely slipped my mind yeah it, I'm glad you brought it up because I didn't have it in my notes either, but you're right. The confrontation is really important. I think to understanding Sarmina and also setting up a little bit of the moral quandary of like the vermin species, right? Even though that For these sure. wild cats are not vermin, there is a much more dynamic range to, can they be good? Can they be bad? What really distinguishes between uh, someone who's bad and someone who's not. And I think that, mm -hmm. Here we see Gingivere is very just, is much kinder, uh, and Sarmina is vicious and and um, she's suspicious of you know kind of everyone around her, and she is absolutely just a, like a rage monster, right? <laughs> like most cats are, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And now I'm gonna get hate mail for, for, for cat <laughs> cat people. <laughs> In chapter 17, Bella issues a new mission to Martin as the search for Ferdy and Cogs continues. She wants Martin to travel to fabled Salamandastron in search of her father, Bor the Fighter, so that he might wage inevitable war against Sarmina. At Katir, Sarmina's troops return with the hedgehogs in tow, which upsets Sarmina. Abbas Germain resolves to launch a rescue effort to Katir, while Martin and Gomf look for a map to Salamandastron. Sarmina's interrogation of Ferdy and Cogs goes nowhere, and the twins are stowed on either side of Gingivere in the Katir dungeons. So much to unpack in this chapter because we're setting the stage for essentially the rest of the book. Right. Um, the the new challenge to be able to find Salamandastrin is 
um, the like established hero's quest, right? Like we haven't yes. really seen that yet, but now we're seeing it. And there's so many familiarities to Redwall in them trying to figure out where a Salmondastron is. They're running all over Brock Hall trying to find these clues, discovering the clues. Um, I think here we get the introduction to Denny, or maybe that happens in the next chapter. We we learn we meet Denny. Um, is it this chapter meet, or is it? Actually, I think Denny was introduced a little bit previously, but he starts to take more of a central role in these chapters. Now, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, anyways, it, it's just really uh, cool to see this hero quest come into vision or it kind of comes into focus. Like we know what needs to happen. And this is so familiar to Redwall. But I'm going to take my pin out on my Martin the Warrior quote, or not quote, my Martin the Warrior discussion, because I don't think Martin is really the main character of this book. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because we're almost 200 pages in at this point. I think we're at like 170. <laughs> and now we're starting to get the central quest. But the quest really is, I mean, it's given to Martin, but Martin is not going, we, we're going to learn that he's not going to be doing this on his own. And yeah. it, I was thinking about it in the parallels between Martin and Matthias in Redwall is that Matthias is the lone hero warrior for this quest. Mm -hmm. But it seems like here, Martin is just kind of thrown into this this journey like i i guess that's not fair to matthias because he's kind of thrown into it too but it seems so much less intentional that martin is having to do this um compared to matthias's role in redwall that mm. as i'm reading it i'm like i don't really think that he's the i'm maybe i'm wrong in this but he doesn't feel like the titular main character uh the protagonist of this book because of the surrounding cast of people that are, are around him i think that the quorum is really the main character you know like if we yeah. can combine them together the quorum is really the thing that is the focus of this book it's it's not necessarily martin specifically right like you could also argue that gomf is the main character because he's technically had more right. screen time than martin has because <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts on that i know that this kind of de deviates specifically from this chapter um but yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts on it no i i think you're right and I've thought about this a lot. You know, Martin as kind of the auxiliary character, he enables the plot, I think, to move forward a little bit. But you're right. He's not really the main character. And I don't, I struggle to say who any main character of this book is, except for maybe Gonf, because you're right. He has like the most, you know, kind of screen time. But I think that if there is a main character of Mossflower, it is the Quorum. I mean, this is yeah. a book ostensibly about the founding of Redwall. So whereas in Redwall, it was definitely Matthias's quest and Matthias's tale. As we're going to see, the main character of the next book, Matameo, is Matameo, right? He kind yeah. of is the mm. central character of that book. And I think that Martin's story is coming later but for yeah. now he's really just kind of the auxiliary character that is needed to partake this particular quest which is to find Salamandastron because bella believes that her father is the only solution to fighting sarmina we also learned that the quorum needs to come together to get ferdian cogs too 
like they're getting their quest as well to be like, hey, we need to go on this rescue mission. They're clearly missing. They're probably in, in Kotir or uh, yeah, they're probably in the fortress. So we need to get there. And that's what that's where I come from with like, okay, Martin's not really the only one. I mean, the the hero journey, he's being asked to go and do this. So I don't want to like, you know, undermine the specifics yeah. of that quest but then gomf and denny are like okay we're going to like bell is like i'm gonna help you out gomf and denny are there like they're now a party together to do this and that's where it makes me think like i don't know if he's really the the standout character i know that we get more of martin and this is even introduced as a story about martin the warrior but i think jakes is being really clever in introducing kind of giving uh using martin as a um uh, like a, a speechless, nameless protagonist for us to learn more about the Cormit yeah. and Mossflower this time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're kind of the introduction into that. And to your point, I let's revisit this again in book two and in book three because I yeah, think I think we need to. That mm-hmm. thesis statement is only going to become more clear. I know how this book ends, and I find that to be really interesting. The other thing Ooh, that I want to okay. bring up about this particular chapter is that we get a little bit more badger lore um, in that we we find out that Lord Brocktree left for Salamandastrin, which is this fabled place. It is the place of dragons, right? Salamandastrin is kind of a portmanteau of some different uh, words, but but basically it means like the land of the salamander or the, the 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 home of the salamander which is a fabled creature uh of fire in in a lot of like folklore and legend and salamandastrin is basically the home of the badger lords it is a a legendary forge for one thing um that that we kind of gather is settled in uh as we're going to come find is settled in like a dormant volcano and the call to salamandastron kind of occurs for basically every badger there comes a point in a badger's life where they get this wanderlust and they have to make the journey out to salamandastron so that happened for Lord Brocktree. It happened right. for Boar. And the only reason it doesn't happen for Bella is because Bella's a a woman. And so she Right, has, yeah. It's she has her mm-hmm. wanderlust, right? She kind of goes off um on her travels, but she doesn't feel the same pull to Salamandastron as it pulled Boar. Um, and it doesn't happen to Barkstripe either, because I think Barkstripe has a different walk of life than boar or lord Brocktree. yeah and that's where the the conflict fell apart is that um why bell is telling martin that he needs to do this well for my understanding is that um bark stripe was the wrong champion they need yes. lord Brocktree to come back uh, boar. Right. they need boar oh, sorry i'm sorry um yeah they need boar the fighter to come back because lord um I'm sorry, uh, Barkstripe was the wrong warrior. And I think that that's really important to the Badger lore as well, is that this idea of a, a champion fighter, this um, this called fighter, and the journey that happens to, you know, w- that kind of happens with these fighters. Um, I'm really excited for 
book two um, because I know it's called Salamanda- uh, Salamandastron um, or Salamandastron. <laughs> Salamandastron, yeah. Salamandastron, okay. Uh, yeah, I know that that's going to be a main focus of it. And so it's it's super exciting to get to. I think we need to have an, a dedicated episode with the four of us to talk specifically about Lord because there's so much to un- unpack here in the timeline of events that things happen that as we get further into the books and even as we get closer to um, the book Salamandastron um, and Lord Brocktree, I think we're going to have to talk way more about this. Like, I think we're going to need to do some kind of dedicated episode for it. Yeah. Well, for what it's worth, Lord Brocktree is the central figure of a future book and Salamandastron is this, central location of another future book so there's a lot of stuff (laughs) that we're gonna come across to talk about for sure yeah yeah well in chapter 18 in brock hall bella gonf denny and martin continue to search for clues and solve riddles to find the secret hiding place of lord brocktree's map to salamandastron Uh, I think the only thing that I had to note about this is this interesting idea that the forebear of uh, basically the male badger um, always leaves his son a map or at least clues to the map of where Salamandastron is. So Lord Brocktree left Boar some instruction, but because Boar never had a son, Boar left no instruction of his own to his son. So the notes that Bella has to interpret are of her grandfather, Lord Brocktree. Yeah, and I, I've i kind of held off on talking about Brock Hall until now because th- this chapter we get to explore Brock Hall way more. We get a great introduction of it back in chapter 13. Um, but I love the setting of Brock Hall. The <laughs> the way that Jake's kind of writes the the ambiance of this um, this cozy cottage. I don't know what you really call it, but yeah. and, and so much of the um, the fixtures within Brock Hall are part of the tree itself is super cool. And the way that they discover the clues through the the um, wooden tables and um, through the the badge for the badgers that's over the mantle place. Like these are things that are just, <laughs> I, I love the way that, that Jake's explores this and kind of writes this and Brock hall s- seems like such a cool place to be. And um, the ambiance that he writes for this is uh, I think the best in this chapter because they're basically running around Brock hall trying to find these things. And so we're learning yes. more about it. Yeah. I love the different, settings that we get in this book i even have a little section that we're going to talk about at the end of the episode uh where we talk about the cool kind of places that we see the cool sections we see uh but Brock yeah, that's a great. great setting yeah cool can't wait for that in chapter 19 in katir gingivere manages to make contact with ferdy and cogs and plans to assist the twins in contacting chib Meanwhile, Sarmina plans to use her forces to ambush any rescue teams. At Brock Hall, Bella and company solve the riddle of Lord Brocktree's ancient map, and Martin, Gonf, and Din plan to sit out for Salamandastron. 
Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot of notes on this one. It was it was just kind of more setting of the stage, um, except that Din, uh, Din or Denny is just one of my favorite <laughs> characters. He's I, I have to reread everything he says three times because of that accent. Um, it's very hard to get through, but he it, it, the way that he's like a supporting He's such a supporting character. He's like the Samwise Gamgee of this group. I just, it's so good. He even says gaffer. You know what I mean? Yes, like, yeah, yeah. It's no, so I, good. I totally agree. Denny, Denny kind of, I didn't notice him so much in the earlier part of the book, but now that he's kind of on the quest team, uh, he's definitely a standout. I really love him. Yeah, and I think when we were first talking about uh, Mossflower, I said, I'm really excited for the party. Like, I can see the party coming together. And I said the party was Martin, um, Gomph, and Ben. Ben Sick, uh, mm. Stickle. And I'm totally wrong about that. It's Denny. And I just yep. think that that's... Um, I think that that's really fun. Um, and I can admit that I was totally wrong on that, but he's, <laughs> I think he's a better inclusion than what I thought Ben would be, uh, simply because, um, I think Denny has just that golden retriever attitude that they're definitely <laughs> going to need on this quest. Yeah. I love, I do love Denny. Uh, I do love these couple of chapters because of the, the riddles and like, I'm always down for a red wall riddle search riddle hunt. Um, I think yeah. it's such a fun part of kind of the the adventurous prospect um, or, or adventurous spirit of the book. Um, and solving some of these riddles as it pertains to the map, it's, it's a lot of fun. So um, good stuff. In chapter 20, the quorum begin to march to Kutir alongside Martin's uh, travel party. But they're spotted en route by Sarmina's scouts. A trio of vermin break off from the main scouting party to follow Martin and his company while the rest of the scouting group retreats back to Katir to sound the alarm. Sarmina spots the woodlanders advancing toward Katir and prepares a war party to lead an ambush. Her tactic pays off as she draws the woodlanders into a deadly skirmish. Lady Amber and her archers team with Skipper of Otters and his slingers to attempt to protect their supply transport as both sides of the skirmish begin mounting heavy losses. Yeah, I was trying to look up who the vermin are. It's Splitnose. It's Splitnose, Blacktooth, and Scratch. And Scratch, yes. I, (laughs) this group, um, when they break (laughs) off, it's... They could not have picked the worst three people to be together. <laughs> um, I This is Jake's writing, um, him introducing a lot of lightheartedness into the story. And just the absolute um, <laughs> dysfunction of, the, this fun- of this party compared to um, Gomp and Martin and Denny is so funny to me. I, I really got a good chuckle out of... Uh, this stout weasel rat group that's trying to chase him down. Very, very funny. Um, go for it. I, I agree with you. I think these three are so... They're the three stooges. They're just so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they really are, yeah. And, but I think they, they serve as a great contrast to 
Martin Gumpf and Denny, who are very collected. They have a plan. They know how to support one another. Whereas these three vermin just have no business hanging out together at all. They all hate each other's guts. They have no planning. They really just don't even know what they're doing, except for following nebulous orders that they got to get these three. It's also just so funny that each of them, they're thinking, when I capture the... Uh, when I capture this group, I'm going to be made commander. And they're all thinking that. And it's so funny to me because they're all so focused on like the rewards they're going to get for this. And this is 100% what Sarmina gets out of the way that she treats her. Um, her command is that she's just basically breeding selfishness into them. And that's so apparent in the way that they treat each other and how they look at this mission and how they're, yeah. you know, pursuing um, the, the, uh, quorum party it's it's very very clever i think these three make the best tragic comic kind of trio <laughs> in the book and and i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about why i think they're tragic comic but i'm gonna save it until we talk about most memorable uh vermin section uh because i i i have a lot of feelings about these three yeah, I can't wait for that. I will say we need to track the Willy Wonka-esque <laughs> thing that happens to each of them as we go on these chapters. Yeah, for sure. They go through a tour of the factory and we all know how that goes. Oh, it's so funny. So in chapter 21, Martin and company continue to make headway towards Salamandastron, followed by Scratch, Splitnose, and Blacktooth, who proved to be fairly incompetent hunters. But while Martin's band travels further and further away from Mossflower, tensions near Katir continue to rise. Skipper and Lady Amber manage to hold off Sarmina's ambush long enough for four mole to sequester the woodlanders off to Mole Deep before the warriors make a break back to Brock Hall. Frustrated by the failure to capture any actual intel, Sarmina retreats back to Katir in a rage. She finally decides to use Ferdy and Cogs to leverage a ransom from the Woodlanders, but Gingivere has a plot all his own to foil his sister. He'll hide Ferdy and Cogs in his own cell while they wait for a Woodland rescue. At Brock Hall, a, pla a plan starts to come together to save the Hedgehog twins, beginning with Skipper's visit to someone called the mask. Oh man, I love all the things that are being set up in this chapter. Uh, first off, it is the, the scratch split nose and black tooth. As, as we just mentioned, their just start to this journey is pretty pretty horrendous. They have no idea what they're doing. They are just kind of like bumbling around, hoping for the best. We'll catch up with them in a little bit. But the tension between Sarmina's army and um, Skipper and um lady amber it goes back to what i was kind of talking about earlier about how they're they are really confident fighters and they're coordinating these volleys they're setting up false traps in these kind of gorilla-esque like tactics it's so cool to see this happening and um just the the conflict unraveling between this i um i this is the thing that i want the most out of redwall for books going forwards is that balancing out the goofiness of the <laughs> ragtag team you know <laughs> getting in trouble or or 
blumbering, uh, just kind of wandering their, their way around. Um, I want to see more of this. Like we have the high stakes that are happening. And I think that that works incredibly well with what's going on in the conflict between Sarmina and the quorum. Uh, yeah, I, I really like that a lot. This is one of my favorite uh, chapters, like these two chapters with the fight um, in the woods near Kotir. Um, I remember as a kid loving Lady Amber's role in the defense yeah. um, because she's she's got her archers lined up and you know there's like this question of like we're gonna run out of supplies at some point like we can't keep this fight up forever and yet she's she's got her ranks of archers very well organized she's signaling with her tail and i just love yeah so clever kind of like squirrel tactics like this is one of the things that made me fall in love with the whole series I mean, as much as uh, the scene with Asmodeus in Redwall, this was another one of those scenes that stuck in my head. I mean, for, for 20 years, I love this skirmish and this fight and the stakes of this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I it did stand out to, to, to me reading this. Obviously, this is the first time I've read this. So as I mentioned before, um, but it, I think this is, yeah, I don't, I don't, I've, I've already said this. It's, it's really just Jake's level of f- effort and detail yeah. going into like, how would these woodland creatures actually fight? Like how would squirrels fight if they were fighting? And, you know, later lady Amber, as you mentioned, using her tail, it's just so clever for that to be part of the way that these creatures are. Um, I love it. I, I am like full in on Redwall. <laughs> <laughs> you would hope so if I'm doing a podcast, but this kind of stuff is just like, I'm so excited to read more books. If this is what's included in more books, like I, I'm so excited to see more of how these um, factions and these, um, these species of, of creatures, um, how he incorporates this into more things. It's so exciting yeah. to read. Yes. Chapter 22. Sarmina is unable to locate Ferdy and Cogs drawing out a deep rage. Back in Mossflower, Columbine experiences Moldeep for the first time before returning to Brock Hall. And Martin and company enter the mountains beyond Mossflower, where new dangers wait for them. Very, Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to contribute to this, except that the dynamic between Ferdy and Cog and what's going on and how they're both secretly being fed, but then that's why Sarmina can't really do anything is because she um, she thinks that starving them out is going to be the thing to help them. And then they're not being, you know, they're being well fed. Right. Uh, thanks to Chib and the coordination with Ginger Beer. And then also him hiding them into the cells is now coming to basically ahead. Right. She's she's. Um, trying to she's she's desperate she's trying to figure out what's going on she doesn't understand the ploy of what of what's going on she's she's getting more desperate and um what she thought would be the best way to undermine the quorum which is Ferdian cogs um they're way more clever than she thought and she doesn't understand right that this is because of gingivere he is orchestrating a lot of this and it's um the dynamic that's building behind the scenes in, in all these kind of interactions with Ferdian Cogs and Ginger Beer is really starting to come together in this chapter. Yeah. I love the family dynamic between Ginger Beer and Sarmina. 
and this kind of rivalry and Sarmina's inability to face her brother, like really face him. Um, that's been a growing theme through all of book one. And here we are finally, Sarmina's trying to kind of face him down, but she still just can't bring herself to do the thing, which is just open that door and really confront her brother. Yeah, which is so funny. Like uh, she, she would find out that they're in there. She just opened the door, right? Uh, which we, I guess, we kind of <laughs> learn about later. Um, but we get to learn more about Moldeep. What did you think about that, dude? I, so again, setting is everything in this book for me. I love seeing the different regions of Mossflower, and Moldeep, along with Camp Willow, is just a highlight for me. Learning a bit more about how the moles live, what their society looks like, because they're kind of sequestered in Redwall. We see some moles, we have some encounters with them, but we don't get to really know them as a culture so much as we do here in this chapter with Moldeep. And I love it. Yeah, it's so cool. I wish we saw more of it. That's my only complaint about this, is it's a relatively short chapter, especially with Columbine in Moldeep. I think it's only like a few paragraphs. Um, yeah. I want more deep. Uh, I, I really, I'm with you. I really enjoyed that. And I'm hopeful that we, we see more of like mole life. Um, I also thought it was kind of cool that there's like a direct line. I think it's from mole deep to Brock hall, right? <laughs> because yeah, yeah. they, they can just go right up for breakfast. They, you know, uh, travel over there and then pop out through the, the floor of the, the, the base of the tree. It's very clever. Very cool. Yeah, I, I totally love the moles and I love moldy. In chapter 23, Skipper meets with the mask, an otter expert of disguise, to share the Woodlanders' plot to save Ferdy and Cogs from Katir. The Woodlanders roll out a fake Ferdy and Cogs for Sarmina to see, but Sarmina is not wholly fooled by their rules or their ruse and plans her own counter strategy even as Gingivere runs interference against her discovery of the twins in his cell. Martin and company manage to elude a pair of swan mates, but the swans claim Scratch as their victim. Man, the first, <laughs> the first kicked off the tour of <laughs> Willy Wonka's factory. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of notes specifically on what's going on with um, Fernie and Ferdy and Cog, just because we, we kind of, I think we can talk more about that going later on, but the ruse is really clever how they say, what if we just, you know, make her think that they got out and right. they're with us and she's not exactly convinced with that. I think that that kind of goes towards the, um, uh, how the quorum and Sarmina really are very equal, you know, like mm. they're trying to uh, dupe her. She kind of sees that she's trying to, dupe them back with her counter strategy um it's just very the dynamic that's going on there i i know i've said this a lot in the podcast but it's very clever and i really enjoy to, to see that and I, I like that it's kind of happening in the in the back um but the standout for this chapter was <laughs> scratch and um <laughs> split nose and black tooth showing up to the lake and 
they think that they are going to get supper from the swan eggs. Um, I think it's funny that they can't even describe what swan eggs are. They're just like, they're just big eggs. (laughs) It'll be be fine. And uh, one of them says, we shouldn't mess with this female swan. Um, And the response, I think it's Scratch that says it, is we have spears. There's three of us. What could go wrong? (laughs) And and, uh, we learned what what went wrong. Um, Incredibly tame death, though. Like Jake's just says, like, he died instantly that's it but i really love the kind of creativity the theater of the mind of what happened with scratch and this a very aggressive male swan um and i like that there's no jokes about that like the well i I guess it is a joke but there's no jokes of uh (laughs) there's the aggressiveness of male swans is real like man they um I was at a park. Um, this was before my son was born, but I was at a park and I witnessed a, a young boy get chased by a swan. And um, it's, the parents kind of came in and had to intervene of what was going on. And I made a mental note. Okay. When I become a parent, I need to be aware of how aggressive <laughs> swan these can be, you know? So um, the, I love that this is the nature of, of the swans is kind of incorporated into this. And yeah. um, this might be up there for most memorable deaths. I, <laughs> I work to talk more about that in our review episode, but that's definitely on my list. I'll tell you a story uh, that I, this is a real story. Um, back in high school, I, I, I stayed late for school one day and I had to take a late bus home. And uh, the late bus, you know, typically the, the driver didn't really have a set route because it was just like who who was on, you know, the, the bus. And so he, for some reason, did not realize that he needed to make a stop for me. And so he missed my stop. And I and when I told him, hey, man, I, I got to get off the bus because you missed my stop. He kind of just set me at the side of, of the road Um which was about three miles away from, from home. <laughs> what a terrible bus driver. What but the heck, he man? The worst. Yeah. And so uh, I didn't, at the time we didn't have cell phones, so I couldn't just like call my parents and say, Hey, I'm three miles away. I got, you got to come pick me up. So I had to walk three miles back home. And as I was walking, I passed by uh, a house that had uh, some swans and one of the swans saw me as a threat and chased me for an eighth of a mile while I had to sprint away from it. <laughs> That's the fastest eighth mile you've ever ran. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm telling you. Oh man. I was, it was one of the worst afternoons I had. And I remember coming in and just being completely gassed out. Just, I had no energy. And my mother was like, what, what happened <laughs> you know like what are you okay what 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 is going on and i told her my bus was late and i was chased by a swan today and <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah that's hilarious wow yeah so that's my swan story um i love this that chapter is, uh, because I've, your swan song yeah i've 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 seen i've seen a swan in action and uh and i do not <laughs> i do not like i don't know i i don't envy scratch at all for what happens to him here
So uh, chapter 24 at Sarmina's behest, Fortunata scours the moss flower countryside for tell of the woodlanders coming close to Brock Hall. The mask dons a fox disguise and plans to confront Fortunata as a diversion. Martin and company are surprised by Blacktooth and Splitnose, who capture the trio of adventurers and ransack their camp. Gonf manages to stir up the embers of their enmity toward one another, though, and the two unwittingly kill each other in a fight, leaving Martin and company to free themselves. This this whole scene is just so <laughs> funny and tragic to me. Um, I love the dynamic of the of how the characters come out, specifically when they get captured. Because first off, um, Martin is ready to fight. He his immediate reaction is <laughs> we're gonna fight them, but Splitnose and Blacktooth have their spears against Denny, so he understands that he can't immediately jump into action because it would put Denny's life in danger. Denny is super chill. <laughs> he's just like, <laughs> he's just like, don't worry about it. You know, he's, he's so cool and calm under pressure. Like, you know, ice in his veins is just like unfazed <laughs> by what's going on. And then Gomp sees this as an opportunity to show his charm like it and <laughs> is able to rouse them up and then they all kind of get into it together and we have the demise of what happens to um i think it's uh blacktooth is the one that falls into the river first right is it black is right? i thought blacktooth was stabbed and then split nose fell into the river i think that's what it is i think you're right yeah and uh then they make the mental note oh this is like um this is uh there's like pot not potholes but there's holes uh, mud holes i don't remember the actual term that they use yes um in in this river so we have to be very careful of how we cross and so they just use this death as a learning opportunity to be like okay there's essentially quicksand like the the rapids move faster than we think because of the mud in the river right is kind of yeah. how i understood it so we need to be very careful how we cross um, so, so funny i loved <laughs> to see how this happened and uh just like the the kid from Willy wonka falling into the um falling into the i sorry i got a weird warning that said that my internet connection was unstable but we're good um just like the the fat kid that falls into the chocolate river in Willy wonka <laughs> that's kind of how i imagine what <laughs> happens to uh to uh split nose i think for me this is where I'll talk about some of the tragic comedy of a lot yeah, of the vermin villains, because I find this scuffle to be both hilarious and just so sad. And I think this is characteristic of a lot of, of the villains is this, this kind of comedic timing in their death, but also the, the tragedy, the sadness of what ultimately happens. We can almost feel sympathy for how some of these folks die because it it really hits kind of an emotional beat for us. So they're squabbling over resources, right? We know that they're kind of greedy and they want everything. This is established in their characters is they're constantly fighting over who gets what. And uh, are you going to share that scrap of bread with me? You know, split it in half. Oh, you got the bigger half. How come I get the lesser half? And in this particular fight, they 
they break into just a an utter melee um spurred on by gonf who kind of tells them like why are you allowing him to take this you know yeah. kind of playing on their their sense of greed for one another and it gets to the point where after split nose stabs black tooth with a spear and it, it's clear that that wound is going to be fatal there is a sadness that overcomes split nose uh, a, a moment of regret where he's like why did we have to fight why did we have to go this far i would have split it with you i would have shared half and then he just drowns <laughs> he just dies yeah yeah he says um no i didn't mean it he says no i didn't <laughs> yeah. mean it he has a yeah, yeah. of regret for killing his friend he also says a pretty unsavory term i know it's supposed to be just him <laughs> No, a, a nickname of endearment um, that we won't say on the podcast, but uh, it, I, yeah, you're totally right. I, I did, I did have that kind of um, that same sense of like sadness that um, he even says, like uh, uh, Martin kind of asked them not to eat all their food because he says we're going to need these resources going back. If you eat all of our rations, we can't get. You know, we're we're gonna starve on the way back. And he says, "Hush, like we've been starved for days now, and so they're just very eager to eat the food." It kind of shows how desperate they are. And the only reason why they found the the camp was essentially out of their desperation. They're wandering around the riverbank, um, or this the bank of this stream, and that's how they they come ac across their camp. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're. I like that you point out the tragedy of the tragedy of this situation, and I think it kind of speaks to our personalities. Where you're looking at the, you know, the kind of tragedy tragedy of this, and I'm just like laughing about the <laughs> the, the way that the party reacts to them. And um, yeah, I'm glad you include that because it brings a little bit more humanity back into. It. I don't know. It's just this little, almost. It's almost Shakespearean. It's almost. Because it, it plays with these this dynamic range of emotions where, you know, you really see the pain on their face as all of a sudden both of them are dead. And then after all of this tableau has has borne out in front of Martin and company, <laughs> their only reaction is like, oh, well, there's potholes <laughs> or pit holes, you know, <laughs> like we got pit holes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, now, I, we I, haven't really talked about the I mask at all. Um, we haven't really talked about the mask at all, but I, I've intentionally not talked about that until we get to the next chapter. Um, so yeah, why don't we jump into it? Yeah. Chapter 25 mask meets Fortunata in the woods and beguiles her into taking him on as an assistant, marking the next stage in the woodlanders plan to free Kurt Ferdy and Cogs. with Fortunata's help mask will infiltrate Katir and then get to Gingivere's cell. Back in the mountains, Martin and company begin to cross a perilous stream that are confronted by a snake and a lizard who demand a toll. Martin prepares for a fight on the far end of the stream. Uh, so with this chapter, I think I think it's a good time to talk about the mask. Um, we, again, we haven't intentionally talked about it because we start to get a bigger picture as to what the plan is here. And I think that plays into what the mask's ability is. So Trevor, why don't you, why don't you explain who the mask is? 
the mask is skipper of otters brother and he is an otter who has this uncanny ability to kind of take on the mannerisms of any number of other creatures and so because of his ability to kind of like mimic other creatures's movements and disguise himself with uh prosthetics and that sort of thing um he has this reputation of being kind of this theatrical everyman if you will um and so he, he takes on the disguise of a fox here and becomes indistinguishable from any other fox except uncannily for his eyes which fortunata yes. kind of notes is they're they're flat and beguiling and, and the evil. most evil of any other fox she's ever encountered yes so that's why i wanted to talk about the mask here because i think i, I think that there's a lot that's kind of behind the idea of him looking like a fox and looking like an evil fox that plays into the dynamic that Fortunata and the mask have. She takes on an alias as well. I forgot. I forgot yeah. what her alias is. It's um, it's like like uh, Roman tail or something like that. Yeah, I can figure it out in the in the post edit. But Bezum uh, tail or Bezum tail. Oh, that's right. Um, Bez uh, Bezum tail. At first, when I read it, I was I said bosom tail, and then I was like, "That's not it." It's something else. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think this is really cool that um, that we get an introduction to another kind of specialty character, uh, like the Shadow Trope, right? Where right. we have this individual ha that has this uncanny ability. I had a hard time understanding if this is a soft magic or not because he's using mm. prosthetics and he's using this talent in order to take on or mimic other other creatures but you can imagine how powerful this ability would be in the setting of redwall because he's able to take on um the instances or take on the the uh, appearance of, of other creatures in order to infiltrate or or in order to spy like it would be such a powerful tool so in my mind i think skipper is intentionally keeping the mask I don't know what you how you feel about this, but I think he's intentionally keeping this talent kind of hidden to yes to <laughs> make sure that his talent isn't ever known because of how powerful this is. He's kind of like an ace in the hole for the quorum. Um, and he uh, the mask even says like he's been practicing a lot of things. He's been practicing. Um, I think it's um, Columbine that says, "Can you?" can you be a bird? And I think he says like, oh, it, you know, it's really hard, but it's something I'm working on or, or something along the lines. Yes. Like, it's just so clever to, to see this, um, this kind of um, the, the shadow trope talent come through, through <laughs> here. And I think that him having evil eyes is so important with his interaction with Fortuna because she's kind of sizing him up and realizes he may be craftier than I am. And because of that, I should like, she's careful of what's going on, but I think the fact that he had the most evil eyes that she had ever seen is so important to why she decides to try to partner with him. Like, I think it kind of speaks to her personality or her, um, 
it kind of speaks to her motivation, knowing that this may be someone that she can work alongside and that's intentional from the mask. Yeah. He's one of my favorite characters in Moss Flower uh, because his like weird ability is just so interesting. He's definitely, he feels like a shadow trope for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although I, I think he plays a much larger role in the story than, you know, just kind of the shadow trope, like the gloomer or something like that. That's only there for a chapter. He also has one of the one-off names. That's another reason why I hope that he's not a shadow trope. I mean, um, I haven't read the whole book, so I don't know what happens with him, but like the mask, the gloomer, like right. shadow, like, you know, they have these kind of one-off names of what their character is. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really curious to see what happens here. Um, and I think we need to talk about this more when we do our review episode, because I'd love to hear the thoughts from others in the group. Yeah, definitely. Um, it'll be fun to see how, I, of course I know what happens, but it, it will be fun to see his role play out in the future of the book. So in chapter 26, our last chapter of book one, Mask brings Fortunata to Brock Hall, further convincing her of his merit as a fox. Fortunata promises him a position as captain at Katir and suggests that he lead an attack on Brock Hall after they report back to Sarmina. In the mountains, Martin and company meet Logalog Big Club, who beats off the snake and the lizard, who are actually just a garden snake and a newt. Logalog hears Martin's quest and decides to assist in providing passage by stream under the mountains to Salamandastron. We are halfway through the book at this point, which is crazy. <laughs> like, I can't believe this is just book one of Moss Father and we're halfway through. But I was so hyped getting to the end of this part one uh, or book one, specifically because of the introduction of Logalog. I texted you after this <laughs> and I just said Logalog explanation point. <laughs> this is such a cool inclusion. And if you listen to season one and you kind of heard our discussion in um, book three of, of season one, so that'd be episode three uh, about log log and the shrews, you'll, you'll know that there's a lot of excitement from, from me specifically regarding the, the shrews. And I love this idea of the log log namesake being kind of a heritage with with shrews i don't think this is a direct descendant of the logalog we meet in Redwall, I, but i think this has to kind of do with um yeah go go for it i think this as actually i think this is intended to be the direct ancestor to the logalog we meet in Redwall. oh because okay logalog says that he gets his name from the fairy shrews like he his family line used to be oh. fairy shrews and and basically you would call out log a log a log a log a log a log and that would summon the log a log shrew to, to help ferry you across the, the river or stream. And so here we have log a log big club uh, who apparently is not the first log a log ever. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he says, you know, even to Martin um, when they're trying to cross the stream, he's like, well, you could have just called me like, you know, call me like this. And then he shouts his name a bunch and they're like, well, that's good information if we had actually had it, you know, before we came to the yeah. team. But... 
Yeah, and I think it's so funny that he just the the crew is ready to fight what they think is a snake. They think is an adder um, and a lizard. And it's so funny that Big Club comes out, just smacks the tail off of the newt and kicks it into the river, which is also really funny. Like that's so rude, man. Just knocking a appendage off in the river. And then we learn that it is a bruised um, garden snake, not an adder. Um, but it's cool. I think I, this whole chapter just felt like a huge callback to Redwall, um, because we get the adder, you know, Asmodeus, we kind of get that in, uh, in there. We get log log in there. Um, Martin takes his, um, uh, takes off his sword, the broken sword, and he draws it to use against the snake. And again, this felt like Matthias, right? This kind of feels like that's the 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 um the climax between matthias and um asmodeus um very cool chapter this got me really excited for book two um i also really like what's going on with uh fortunata and the mask um i really like that they're kind of um working together where she thinks that she's getting the upper hand on him and he is using her in order to get into uh, Cotier. And so they have this whole ploy of introducing into Brock Hall and making it seem like they're infiltrating and that's being used in order to get, get into good favor for him to go to get into Cotier. Um, very cool to see this going along. I know I've been super critical on Foxes before, but I, this is so cool. I really like how Jake's is writing out these kind of scheming spy esque kind of uh what is it espionage type of scenarios and it's all through these foxes well in this instance it's actually through a fox and an otter but you know what i mean right right no i mean i i agree with you um i love the way that this kind of sets up you know book two um because you're right we're we're halfway through the book at this point but i feel like we've been given enough pieces enough parts that you know, we're kind of looking forward to this transition. Um, I'm really excited for book two for a lot of different reasons, not just because I love the mask and I'm ready to see some of that subplot kind of come together, but I'm also really excited for Salam and Dastrin, um, which is another really cool location. Yes. You know, just, just uh, on the other side of the mountains from this point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a massive episode, but we're not done because we (laughs) still need to talk about our memorable side characters and vermin and locations. That's a new thing that we're kind of doing with with Mossflower. So we're going to take a break real quick and then join us as we talk about the side characters, um, vermin and locations. All right, we're back at it, and we want to talk about the memorable side characters. I have so many thoughts. I think this might be the hardest list of side characters because part one is so big in this book. We meet so many people, um, so many different characters, and I love so many of them. So picking one is going to be really, really hard. Um, So because of that, I'm going to let you start first, Trevor, (laughs) just so I can get my thoughts together. So, you know, I... I kind of kept a tally of like who are the interesting characters in this book one for the most memorable side characters and again it's so hard to boil them down you know uh i didn't even include chib for example because as much as i think chib is fun i don't think that he's most memorable to me 
Um, but there's Gonf, there's Dinny, who in the latter half of book one really steps up as a really fun character. Ferdian Cogs, who are hysterical every time we see them. Um, Abbas Germain, who's important to the entire lore of Redwall. There's Bella of Brockhall, who is super important to the lore of Badgers. There's Skipper of Otters, who's just a badass. There's Lady Amber, who's also just a badass. There's Squire Gingivere, who is an interesting wrinkle on kind of the villain archetype. And then there's the Mask, who's just a really cool secondary character. Yeah. And I, I will note that on this list, you may notice that Martin is not on this list. We actually have already met Martin, so that's why he's not considered a memorable side character. Um, Martin the Warrior through the first Redwall book. Um, so yeah, if you're thinking like, oh man, oh man, they missed out on a, a character, that's why he's not on here. Yeah. For me, I think though, the character that steals the show, every scene he's in is Gonf. I absolutely think that if there is a main character that we walk away with from this book, it's Gonf. He is one of the most dynamic one of the most fun characters in this whole book yeah trevor i know that you are the the older brother the wiser more mature <laughs> uh more studied older brother uh because of answers like this it is definitely gomp <laughs> gomp is like the best character in this in 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 moss flower this well at least in this introduction for moss flower i will say i am shocked as to how little fan art there is of gonf um because he's so cool and i've really had to kind of scour the web to try to find some some cool pictures of gonf to be able to share in our instagram so if you have one that you really like and or if you do fan art yourself uh, we would love to be able to feature that on our instagram uh but yes it's a tragedy that that gonf is not getting more of a recognition that he deserves he's such a cool character yeah i absolutely love gonf um i think too clearly jake's loved gonf um in yeah. a Q&A he did with some some of his fans they asked him you know who who is really your favorite character and he was like uh you know kind of hedging a bit but he's like it's Gonf <laughs> like Gonf <laughs> he's like Gonf is the character who is most like me in any of these books and I think it's just very clear he had a, a love and a passion for characters like Gonf so yeah all right what about most memorable vermin so in here we have a whole bunch of interesting vermin characters there's uh obviously sarmina but i think of her more as the big bad so i wouldn't call her just a memorable vermin so much but we get verdaga green eyes we have ashleg we have fortunata there's the gloomer there's argulor there's scratch split nose and Blacktooth, and there's clud those are the ones that I think stand out the most. I hem and haw about this a lot because I'm not sure who really is going to be the most memorable over time. For me personally, on this reread, it was Scratch, Splitnose, and Blacktooth. I think that trio is so fun for the chapters that they do show up in. I think they're an interesting foil to martin's group and their tragicomic end for me is just so absurdly funny and sad that i think they really show the range of 
emotion that Jake's is capable of kind of creating with some of his secondary characters. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I think that Scratch, Split Nose, and Blacktooth stand out so much because they they really do have a dedicated time in the book. Yeah. Like outside of these, like I would I want to say Argulor, but he's not really in it all that much. Like he he shows up every once in a while. It's, he's just kind of looming out there. Um, but I don't really know if he's all that memorable compared to some of these other other names. Um, I think I'm going to go with the gloomer. I think that even <laughs> though he's, he's, he's a shadow trope, I think that the lead up to the gloomer, like he's mentioned and like he has an own, his own dedicated chapter of him, you know, being unleashed. And then the, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the summer slam that happens <laughs> with, with this chapter, I really, really like the gloomer. So I'm picking him as my most memorable vermin. I, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think basically anything in this list is probably a great choice. So, except for Clud, I actually don't know who who Clud is. <laughs> Clud. Is he the guy that jumps out the window? Or... No, 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 no. I w- I wish that guy had a name because he's so great. Like he will live in the legends of uh, of like most famous deaths for me for sure. Um, yeah, is that the is that the death that you texted me about? Like you asked me what chapter I was on, and I I yeah. told you, and you're like, okay, you need to, okay, yeah, yeah. I texted you because as soon as I read it, I was like, this is this is spectacular. <laughs> it's just, he doesn't have a name. I need to go back and see. I don't think he has a name. It, but... No, I think he just jumps yeah. out a window and he just gets eaten. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so I don't know. It's just so That's it's funny. so funny, and I think that of all of the the many deaths in any of these books um because jake's you know he writes a lot of deaths man a lot Um, of deaths this was one of the most fun though i just his comedic timing is so great i don't think i've i've read many books where i had to set the book down because i was laughing too hard um but that was one of the cases with moss flower i had to take like a breather because i just laughed and laughed and laughed so uh, our last, you know, kind of roundup is just uh, some cool new locations. We have uh, Katir, we have Brock Hall, we have uh, Camp Willow, and we have Moldeep. So for you, you know, what do you think was your coolest setting? I, I, it's got for me. It's got to be Brock Hall. Um, I think it's it's just such a cool inclusion i love that it's the home base for the quorum as well i haven't really mentioned Mm. that but it's spacious enough that the whole quorum can be in there and they can you know scheme and they can plan um and i just love the the way that jakes describes brock hall um and then the importance that it has in in badger lore as well i yeah it's it's such a cool new place i will say that camp willow was another one that stood out to me because um, it's right after that really crazy chapter where the otters are trying to get away from Sarmina and they go into the willow and we start to see more of how the otters live and being um, a very otter like person myself that was <laughs> like you know I, I did really like that um, so it's definitely a toss-up but Brock Hall is a winner for me yeah I think I'm inclined to agree it it's tough for me because I love, I love all of these locations so very much. And I know that in book two, it's obviously it's going to be Salamandastrin. I, I don't, I don't even yeah. know if you need to have a poll in the second part of the book, you know, but 
I think Brock Hall is such a unique location and it, it feels like a kind of ancestral home. Um, and the kind of rustic imagery of Brock Hall is just so beautiful and cozy. And like, I, I feel like I can feel the, the fire from the hearth in Brock Hall. And I, I just love that. I will say, yep. I think Katir is another great location. And I think that Jake's does a phenomenal job of kind of giving us this idea of like a crumbling ancestry, you know, in, again, in juxtaposition with Brock Hall, you know, Katir is like falling apart. It's not well-maintained. It's the place where people go that don't really know how to, you know, keep up a place. Um, they know how to take a place, but they don't really know how to keep up with it. And I think that Katir is a place of, of misery and decay, whereas Brock Hall feels like a place of like warmth and um, heritage. And so I think that they, they stand out to me a lot as just phenomenal settings. Um, but I definitely love Brock Hall over Katir for sure. Yeah, I didn't even really catch the parallels between the two. Like, you know, Kotir is often really cold and built out of stone. And even Jake's kind of describes it as being like cold and, and, and damp and um, empty. But then Brock Hall is like underground and warm and cozy and full of life. Like that's a really good um, that's that's a really good call out because they, they parallel each other very, very well. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's book one. That's it. Yeah. Book one, which is half a book, which is still (laughs) funny to me. Um, Yeah, that's that's book one. I know this has been a really long episode. um, So if you made it this far, thank you so much for for joining in our discussion. And we want to hear from you. So um, uh, please follow us on uh, Instagram or threads at books and badgers. Uh, That's with an N in the middle books and badgers. You can also um, send us messages there if you want to direct message us or if you want to um, join in on some of the polls that we do. There's just a lot of activity that we we try to keep up with with um, Instagram and threads. Um, If you want to send us questions directly, you can also do that at our email address at booksinbadgers at gmail.com. Again, that's with the N in the middle, booksinbadgers. Um, so yeah, we, we are, I, I know we've said this in other, uh, other episodes, but we're really looking to kind of build a community around the podcast around Redwall, And so we want to join in on more discussions. So, um, we're trying to champion those, those discussions, but we also want to hear from you, you know, what are some of the most memorable vermin? What are some of the most memorable, um, heroes, uh, and what are those cool locations for you? Um, if you like uh, to hear uh, more about what Trevor's doing, uh, he uh, hosts his own podcast, uh, Slayhouse Presents. Uh, you can find that basically wherever you get podcasts. And um, as you mentioned, kind of at the beginning of the show, so many cool things going on right now. It's kind of the spooky season. So you're in like high gear with uh, new book releases and interviews and really awesome stuff coming down the pipeline. Yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff down the road. Uh, if you're looking for some spooky season reads about mid-October, uh, I'm pairing up with Katrina Caruth, another horror writer uh, who recently had a story published in Cosmic Horror Monthly. Um, and we're going to talk about some of our favorite spooky season media. So you can watch for that sometime around mid-October. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and then lastly, if you want to support the show, the best way you can do that is to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. So whatever your chosen platform for podcast is, uh, leaving us a review um, is huge. It helps us to uh, get more listeners and kind of uh, grow a bigger audience um, in the absolute awful algorithm that is <laughs> Google Play Store and uh, and um Apple podcast. So, uh, yeah, that's the best way to support us. And we thank you so much for listening to this very long episode. We're going to be back with book two, which is going to be shorter because we literally just have less pages to cover with <laughs> book two. Uh, I'm super excited for it. Trevor, as always, it's been a pleasure to be able to talk about this and, uh, we'll uh, see you guys next time. Bye.